Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you're in the market for some earbuds or some headphones, some new listening equipment, go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. When you do that, you'll get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have a great show for you. Ron Curry is my guest. His new novel is called The One-Eyed Man. It's available now from Viking. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. You get a book every month. I interview those authors on this podcast. It makes for a very nourishing, holistic literary experience. I highly recommend it. So Ron Curry, in just a moment, he was one of my very first guests on this program. It's been many hundreds of episodes since he appeared. Uh, I think he was one of the first three or four or five people I talked with. And now he is back making a triumphant return. And I could not be happier for him in all of his success. So that in just a moment, before we begin, I do want to read one piece of mail from a listener named Liza. She writes, dear Brad, I noticed you're back on Twitter. That reminds me of something I've been curious about. I see you retweeting stuff from people all across the left side of the political spectrum. Matthew Iglesias after Glenn Greenwald, after Nancy Pelosi. You don't seem to have a lot of concern for the divide between the liberals and lefties which is fine and cool with me. I think a lot of good energy is squandered by infighting. But I'm curious to hear about your political identity. Do you feel conflicted or confused, or is it easy for you to follow your gut? Thanks for your show, Liza. So thank you, Liza, for listening and for taking the time to write in. I appreciate it. It's funny that you mentioned this stuff about infighting between the different factions of the leftward side of the political spectrum because Ron and I, in conversation talk about this at pretty good length. Uh, I think Ron Curry and I are similar in the sense that we both pay 
um, maybe too much attention to politics. And we talk about this because I don't know how to have a conversation with anybody these days where this doesn't come up. I don't know how you do that. It's like practically all I think about. So you're going to hear Ron and I go over this. And, you know, as far as my political identity goes, I'm a registered independent. I'm just not comfortable joining a team, but uh, I'm a liberal. I supported Bernie. And then I voted for uh, Hillary against Donald. And I'm not, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm confused. I think I'm temperamentally predisposed to confusion. I do have some convictions politically. I think Bernie spoke to those a lot. But uh, I think if I was going to say one thing, and then I'll get to the show, but I think that the one thing that I keep coming back to in my head is the way in which the political process in our country has been corroded by the removal of facts from the dialogue, how people can live in their own media universes, how people can have their own facts in the modern world manner in which it, you know, it is constructed. This to me feels extremely damaging to the democratic process. And I think we have to get back to some kind of foundation of agreed upon facts. And from that foundation, we can then have a messy spirited debate, you know, but absent that it's going to be very difficult to do constructive things in our politics. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So having said that, let's get to the main event and uh, my conversation with Ron Curry. His new novel, One More Time, is called The One-Eyed Man. I am in a hotel room in San Francisco, California, 3,000 miles away from home, pimping my new novel, The One-Eyed Man. Well, not actively at the moment, but I will be tonight and was last night. Um, and I am surrounded by the detritus that accumulates when a man stays in a hotel room by himself. I'll let you <laughs> fill in the blanks on that one. And, you're, and, you, and you were telling me before we came on that you're operating on relatively little sleep. Yeah, yeah. Are you caffeinated? Uh, are, are you taking like five-hour well, energy or anything like that? You got some amphetamines? No, man. I don't do any of that shit. That's for kids. I, uh, if I, honestly, what I've thought with the advent and explosion of all these energy, everything, energy, you know, jelly beans, energy, drinks, etc. Like back in my day, 
we were honest about it and we just got some coke when we were <laughs> <it. laughs> right now it's like I don't know. Anyway, no, I don't. I don't drink coffee. It's like the one vice I've never had. Oh, really? Yeah. No I mean, caffeine. I drink tea sometimes, but it's not. It's not the same thing. Like. Yeah. I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading this book right now, or I just finished actually yesterday. Uh, this book called Blitzed, which is all about uh, amphetamine and, and other drug use in the Third Reich. Uh, that was an eye opener. I, I just did not realize. I mean, it makes perfect sense in retrospect, and you know. <laughs> But I didn't, I didn't, you know, I never had the facts laid out like that. Like not only were the, you know, was the leadership completely jacked on amphetamines and morphine, but like also like just the general population, uh, you know, like the most popular over the counter drug or one of the most popular over the counter drugs was crystal meth. No kidding. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I knew the broad strokes of the Nazi regime being a bunch of pill heads, but, um, you know, they were basically like. They were like the beat writers before the beat writers came along. They were all, you know, hopped up on Benzedrine and, um, you know, they got things done. I know so they like did. Said, yeah, they got stuff done. Like this is the thing about uh, trying to create or do anything professionally, I guess, or anything productive under the influence is that. And I think about this more in the context of, of uh, marijuana, because it's very tempting to think that you could come up with a great story or novel or some sort of mm-hmm. uh, piece of fiction um, using marijuana as uh, you know uh, a helper or whatever, but I, I just feel like it's always diminishing returns. Like it never actually works out in practice. It's only good in theory. And yet, I guess there are some people who may manage to pull that off. Like you, you, it seems like you could do it for one book, and then after I that, I think it, that's also. I think that's also a young man's game, to be honest. Like right, when I was younger, I used to write while I was drinking all the time and you know, I mean 90% of it was garbage, but 90% of what I wrote back then was garbage anyway. Um, now there's no way I cannot write. If I, if I've had even one or two drinks, I just can't write. Um, like literally can't hold the thought in my head to write, let alone, you know, get anything worthwhile done on paper. So, and I, I really believe for lack of any other explanation, I really believe it's a function of age for me. Yeah, it goes. And and what do you do though? Like, cause uh, you, if you don't drink caffeine, you, you're not drinking. Like, do you have a ritual like to prime yourself? Cause like, you know, it, it's it's it does involve like writing and, and and being at your best creatively, or I guess being at your best at anything. Like, there is something to be said for like priming yourself, putting yourself in the best possible state. Like, do you have a ritual? Not a ritual per se. I mean, I think what you're referring to is like everybody approaches it differently, right? For some people, it's about being at the same at the same spot at the same time every day with the same pen or the same keyboard or whatever. Um, which I think is more all of these little things that are more about sort of uh, rearranging the furniture in your brain than about the actual physicality. You know what I mean? Sort of like, you know, some writers will have like a little shack out in the back of their property so that they, quote unquote, go to work. You know what I mean? It's about a state of mind. Um, for me, the one thing that I do consistently before I write is go to the gym. And, um, you know, I often joke that working out is cheaper than therapy, but it, it helps me emotionally for sure. Like I'm a much better person and a better partner when I've, when I've had exercise on any given day. But it also puts me in the right state of mind, like a very calm, um, sort of sedate state of mind that, that gets me ready for writing. Yeah, I'm the same so way. A good, a good hard workout, and then followed immediately by like breakfast and writing. 
What do you do? Can I ask? Like, I mean, what's the Ron Curry workout plan? <laughs> you know, I've been waiting for years for somebody to ask me that question. <laughs> it's about goddamn time. Because um, everybody's always commenting on my arms and pictures. I was actually, um, I met Jim Shepard for the first time the other day. He was doing a reading in Portland where I live in the... Um, Portland, Portland Maine, right? Portland, Maine, yes. Let's be clear about that. Um, and I went to have a drink with him before the reading, and I had on my jacket. I took my jacket off, and I sat down. And the first thing he said to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's like, he said something about my guns. And I was like, <laughs> this is the first thing that Jim Shepard says to me. <laughs> like one of, the contempor- one of the contemporary American masters. First thing out of his mouth is about my arms. So anyway, I've been waiting a long time for somebody to ask me that question, and I'm glad you did. Great. Um, I used to, I've been working out regularly since I was like 13, 14 years old. Um, And it used to be more about vanity than it is now, because I've reached the conclusion at age 41, and I'm aging, I feel like I'm aging and fast forward, like I feel like I look older than 41. So you can keep yourself in as good shape as you want, but if you look like, you know, if you're starting to resemble Freddy Krueger from the neck up, it doesn't matter what shape your body's in anymore. Like you lose the vanity aspect of it. Um, but so I used to do like traditional muscle head workout, like lots and lots of heavy weights, maybe a little bit of cardio on the side here or there. But back then in my twenties and in my early thirties, I didn't need, you know, metabolically, I didn't need to do any cardio. I just, I ran at a high rate. I was lucky that way. Um, and then like, I guess it was in my mid-30s. One day I woke up, and I'd been working out all along, and I looked down, and I realized I had a pretty good paunch going. I was like, where did that come from? So I realized I had to start doing some cardio, and I started running, which I always hated. But it really is true. I mean, I hated running. Like, a 5K was my absolute top end. I would do it, like, once a month maybe, and I loathed every second of it. Um, but it really is true that once you get into running and you start doing real distance, you start getting upwards of six, seven, eight, nine miles, like something clicks, your, your neurochemistry changes and it's like the most wonderful thing on earth. I just love it now. Wow. Um, yeah. Cause people yeah. do have, they talk about like that bliss, you know, you get into that endorphin state or whatever, uh, once you've Which kind sounds of like, it sounds like, like soft headed bullshit, right? Doesn't it? Like if you unless you've experienced it yourself, but it's a totally genuine phenomenon. It doesn't happen every time out. But when it does happen, you're like, one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that I, I end up feeling like I could run forever. Yeah. Those are the best like days. You, you lose the sense, all sense of fatigue. You even lose the sense of, of effort. You know, it, it, your body is sort of, you reach this, this sort of, uh, this perfect, alchemical thing that happens in the body where it's just sort of working of its own volition and your mind is free to go wherever it wants. Um, it's a really interesting thing. It's, it's a state of mind that I really like to be able to bottle up and occupy while I'm writing, to be honest. Yeah. Well, how many, how many miles a week are you running? Like, are you, are you doing this most mornings before work or is it you dividing between the gym and running or? Well, I usually in this right now, I just run at the gym on the treadmill because it's cold as shit but right. slippery and, and nasty and just I don't want to be out there but in this in the warmer months I usually run to and from the gym and you know and then do some sort of crossfit ish workout at the gym um, but I'm going to be training for a marathon I did a half marathon a couple of years ago and I want to train for the full this year so I'll be doing like you know once I reach 
the meat of that approach to the work or to the marathon I'll be doing probably 60 or 70 miles a week. Jesus. And you're yeah, it's brutal. But it's also, I feel like, I feel like it's also, uh, I don't know. Like it makes perfect sense to me because I'm, I'm wired the same way. If I don't do something physical, I feel, I feel weird. It affects my mood, all of it. Um, but it also like, there's a discipline to it that I think, uh, you know, serves as a nice parallel or something to the discipline that you need to get the writing done. Uh, I don't totally. know. I, yeah. I believe that 100%. I think that it's twofold. Number one, it's just the daily discipline itself of, of, um, you know, exertion. But two, it's, it's also, again, about the mindset. It's sort of like, you know how, you ever watched the dog whisperer? Yeah. Okay. So you know how like one of his big things is to like, if you want your dog to behave and if you want your dog to, to, um, you know, you want to put the dog in a working mindset and he always straps these bags under the dog's backs and puts like water bottles in them to give them quote unquote work to do. Right. I feel like it's sort of the same thing. Like you, you're, you're, you're giving your body work and it puts your mind into a state where it's prepared to, to sort of buckle down and, and, or knuckle down and do whatever you put in front of it to do. And in my case, it happens to be writing, but whatever it is that you do. Um, I really do believe that. Yeah. And I also feel like, I mean, the thing too, is that like once you've done a lot of exercise or you're in reasonably good shape and you know how it feels to be in shape and you know, like, like neurochemically and physiologically and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I genuinely puzzle at people who don't do anything and yet seem relatively even keeled and, and emotionally stable. Like I'm like, how are they pulling this off? You know, I'd be a fucking disaster. <laughs> and I think, I think the explanation is that they're actually, there's nothing wrong with them. Right. I mean, to put it bluntly, I think that there's something probably wrong with us clinically. <laughs> um, no, something mild, you know, no big deal, but, um, but significant enough that, that we require that thing just to be normal fucking human beings. Right. Um, so it's definitely true of me. And I've known that for a long time. Like one of the things that I like about getting a little bit older is that I stop railing against these aspects of who I am and just accept them and, and, you know, utilize workarounds. Like I'm not trying to be perfectly sane anymore and I'm not beating myself up for not being perfectly sane. I've just figured out how to work with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and frankly, it seems I've talked to, you know, what is it? Almost 500 writers at this point, And, it's, no it's, 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 yeah, it's not uncommon. Uh, like I can tell you from a, a fairly wide test sampling of people, uh, in our line of work that it, this, this sort of thing is fairly common. I believe it. I believe it. And it's all, you know, I don't think anybody's ever done like an empirical study of this sort of thing, but, and it's, and it's a truism and a cliche that the artistic temperament or the artistic personality is also, you know, riddled with emotional difficulties and it's certainly not true of all of us but i think it's true of a plurality um it's just a question of what form it takes you know substance abuse depression bipolar whatever but it's all out there and it's pretty rampant yeah so how many days a week are you writing like what's you like have you been consistent throughout your adult life has it changed as you've gotten older like do you pretty much sit down every day or yeah for the most part um but i do go through periods of and again, like I'm, I'm no longer beating myself up about these things or, or trying not to anyway. Like I do go through periods of what I think of as renewal where I won't do much of anything. I might, you know, noodle around with an essay for a week or two or, 
but I'm not really working toward anything big. I'm not, I'm not working on a novel or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's generally speaking, it's hugely important to, to try to put pen to paper every day in some form or another. Um, and right now, you know, I've diversified what I'm doing writing wise quite a bit. Like I do a lot more freelance and nonfiction work than I ever did in the past. Um, I'm working on a television project that's starting to take off a little bit. And so, and I'm also in the middle of another novel with this new novel that, that has just come out. So, um, what I'm trying to learn and what I'm, what I'm trying to teach myself and what I'm learning slowly is how to juggle all of these projects and not get bogged down in any one thing and, and not feel overwhelmed and, and also be able to like, you know, writing a novel takes a good deal of concentration and a good deal of brain space. Um, well, writing a novel successfully, writing a shitty novel, you can do whatever, but <laughs> it's actually, um, it's actually very easy. It's <laughs> <laughs> <piece of> cake. <laughs> you can do it while watching TV. Yeah. Um, so it, that's been a learning experience for me. But one of the things that, um, my partner has helped me understand too, is that and I realize for whatever reason, entering early middle age is on my mind today. So I'm going to talk about it a lot apparently, but sure. one of the things about reaching this stage of life is you can get, you can get into ruts, right? You can get into grooves. Like I've been, I've been making a living writing books for 10 years now, which is a pretty long time. Um, and you can get into a rut with even with stuff that you love and are really good at, and you realize that you're just sort of spinning your wheels a little bit. Like you, you wake up one day and you think, I'm just not enjoying myself. And for me, the answer to that is to diversify, you know, to try new things and to fail, frankly, to fail at new things. Um, with an eye toward eventually succeeding, of course. But uh, we just, I feel like it's really easy to forget to experiment it's really easy to forget that you can reinvent yourself even when you're 40 years old, you know? Sure. Um, so that's sort of where my efforts are and, and my, my thought process is these days. So can you disclose, like uh, you talk about some of the nonfiction projects you might be doing, like is this magazine work? And then uh, what about the TV show? Like, are you at liberty to speak of it? Uh, I can speak of it in broad terms. Um, the, it, the nonfiction stuff is all magazine work. Yeah. It's, you know, Right now, for example, I'm doing a piece that I pitched to a uh, to a magazine about this guy, um, this guy named Big Al Cohen, who runs a uh, discount surplus store in in Maine. He's very famous locally. He's sort of an icon of summer. He's a maniac. He does these crazy TV commercials where, like, he always wears a wildlife shirt every day, like a. a you know, like a gorilla face t-shirt and yellow suspenders. And he's got this crazy beard and he's always wearing a beanie and he yells at the top of his lungs. He's just a maniac. Um, and I got the idea of writing a profile of him and I pitched it to the magazine. They loved it. And I'm in the middle of writing it right now. So that's a good, a good example of this. It's just like, I don't do anything that doesn't interest me because I don't have to. Um, and then with the TV projects, um, I've been working with Josh Moore, who I, I think you know. Yeah. Um, he and I have worked on a... F we've developed a few projects, but there's one in particular that's sort of... Um, we're getting into the process of actually taking it out into the world right now, and it's pretty exciting. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I, both of us... Neither one of us had ever collaborated before, 
you know, we're novelists, we're lone wolves, we're and I always imagined I couldn't collaborate. Like no way. No way could I ever let anybody mess with my precious words and it's been the experience of it and obviously part of it is that Josh and I are good together. But but really it's so much fun because and so rewarding because it's not like with the novel where you sit there and if you're stuck, you're stuck, right? You you get up, you go go for a walk, you clean the kitchen or whatever, and you hope to get unstuck, but you're doing it all on your own. Whereas with collaboration, our experience so far has been, I'm stuck, and Josh says, well, what about this? And I'm like, actually, that sounds fucking great. Why don't we do that? And right. like, that's, that's, that's the process of unblocking yourself. It takes like five seconds. No, it's like, and I feel like, I feel like screenwriting uh, lends itself to collaboration. I, I know people do it on their own, and they do it well, but... There's something about uh, bantering back and forth and the, the generative process of coming up with ideas in conversation with somebody. Yeah. I mean, it almost makes me wish I had somebody that would just be like on call to sit with me while I'm writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just talk about this? Because I, do you know what I'm saying? Because I guess maybe I'm a verbal person, obviously. I do this, I do this show. I talk to a lot of people. Um, right. it's, nice, it's nice to have that. And, it's, and it's, it's especially nice just as a counterpoint to the lonely work of writing fiction, like lonely, but very, very rewarding work. Totally. I think maybe, you know what, this might actually be a good business idea. I think you and I should start a business and we'll call ourselves book doulas. (laughs) We'll make ourselves available to whoever needs us like 24 hours a day, like a hotline type thing. (laughs) In charge of fucking premium. Yeah. Bring crystals. like, Like a couple, couple hundred bucks an hour. Like, we'll talk you through whatever's going on with your book. <laughs> you know what? I mean, honestly, if I had the money, I'd be, I'd be hiring a book doula. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll get the crystals and the candles and all that stuff. We can do house calls, <laughs> but that's going to cost more. Water birth. Oh God. Um, so here you are at like, what is this fourth book? That's correct. Fourth book. Um, has anything changed for you? Does it get easier from book to book? No. Always the same. Yes. The actual process of pounding out a manuscript is always the same. What's what's changed for me is that I'm... um, And again, here we go with the early middle age stuff. Um, I'm more preoccupied with and cognizant of my motivations and my sort of... my obsessive themes... You know, whereas when I was writing God is Dead or Everything Matters, uh, I was just writing, you know, I was brash and I, and I had shit to say and, and I was going to say it and I wasn't thinking too much about the process or, or what was motivating me to to want to say those things in the first place, right? Um, now, you know, especially with this new book, I've come to realize that that one of my, probably my biggest obsessive theme is of grief and so I wanted to sort of examine why that was, and, and I wrote a short essay about it. And, and um, um, so in that way, it's different. Like I, you know, sort of examining, you know, taking stock in a sense, I guess, like taking stock of why this, why I am the sort of writer that I am, and yeah. why I write the things that I write. And I ne- it never even occurred to me to wonder about or try to try to articulate to myself the reasons for that before. Well, you didn't, you didn't have a body of work where like all, you know, you look up four books in and you're like, wow, I sure think about grief a lot. You know, like, it's, <laughs> like do you know, like, yeah. did you, did you find some answers? Cause I'm, that's one of my main themes too. Like, why, why are you yeah. stuck on it? Um, 
I don't know if I have any answers. I mean, I, I, I do know that, that the experience of grief um, has always been, I, I look around at other people and how they deal or seem to deal with loss, and I think that it's always been a more powerful, I mean, it's a powerful experience for anybody, but I, but I think it's overwhelming for me. Like, I, I really struggle, even at my age now, with saying goodbye to people, let alone people dying. So, like, coming out here, you know, when I say goodbye to my partner in the morning when I'm getting on a plane at 7 o'clock and she's still in bed and I, like, I struggle with it all day. You know, there's a, there's a real sense of loss even when I'm physically removed from somebody, let alone when they die. And so um, that might have something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in the essay, I, I pointed out that as a child, I, I remember when I was grieving over whatever, I, I remember the distinct sense that the adults in my life were sort of freaked out by the by the the scope of my grief, by the power of it, um, that it was outsized, if that makes sense. Um, so I think it's probably related to that, but but explaining why that is, I, I couldn't begin to explain. I just, I, I don't really have distinct memories of childhood. I have more like emotional impressions. Yeah. And one abiding impression that I have is of finding it extremely difficult to say goodbye to people. Um, and maybe that's normal kid stuff. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I'm that unusual a person, but I, um, just based on all the available evidence and recollection, I, I think that, that I, I grieve the loss of people in whatever form, whether it's just, you know, being geographically distant or the, somebody being dead. I, for me, it's, it's more pronounced than it is for most other people, I think. Well, I suppose this would be the time for me to uh, break the news to you that we are going to have to hang up in a little bit, and I'm going to have to say goodbye. <laughs> I just want to try to... You know what? No, 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 it's good you mentioned that, because it gives me time to, like, I'll be able to compose myself. <laughs> so, I, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm similar, and, uh, I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, you know, loss is the ultimate thing you know, for all of us, like if this, eventually this is all going to end and that's puzzling. And to me, it's like, what else is there? Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of other aspects to life and you can't sit around obsessing about death all day and loss all day, but it is a big preoccupation because it's, it's the ultimate reality and we don't know exactly what it means. So it seems like something like if you're going to be fixated on something like that's a pretty good candidate. Yeah. And I, you know, not just because it's such a um, a pervasive and unavoidable, inescapable thing, but also because of what you sort of alluded to a minute ago, which is the fact that we move forward in the face of it, to me, is, is nothing short of heroic. You know, and we all do it. Like, every person I passed on the street today has experienced, you know, even the little kids have experienced what for them, well, you know, is tremendous loss and yet we have this amazing ability it's like it's like a superpower almost to take on that loss which should in in certain instances destroy us and we take it on and we move through it and we get on with our lives and i think the fact that we all do it the fact that 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 phenomenon is so ubiquitous blinds us to how heroic it really is yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's like, it's funny because, you know, we all go through periods, especially if you get to be our age, like you're going to lose people. You're going to have an, like a deep experience of grief, most likely, unless you really are a statistical outlier. 
And what I found in periods of intense uh, grief and depression where you're just, you're right there in the thick of it. And the existential difficulty of it is really like hitting you right between the eyes. What I've noticed uh, is that even then, like a human being can't sustain any mood or any mindset. Like they're impermanent for a reason. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like I can be grinding so hard in a sense of loss and difficulty. And then for reasons that I can't even really figure out, things will change. You know what I'm saying? Even though the, the, the reality of the loss is still right there, I just happen to feel better. You know, and I don't know if that's neurochemistry or if that's just I wear myself out with the darkness you know what i'm saying i yeah. just think human I, beings can't they can't carry it permanently you have to you have to shrug it off right and i think that that you know at its heart at its core is probably just you know you could you could probably view it and i'm sure there's some scientists out there who would confirm this as an evolutionary strategy yeah right yeah. like like physiologically we cannot sustain that intensity uh, and survive, and so we've adapted to the point where our our bodies and our minds will simply refuse to sustain it in the interest of self preservation. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you a question. Getting heavy. No, it's good though. It's good. I like this because this is this is the deep theme of your work. You know, so it's right there and relevant, and uh, it's also a fascination for me because I've had these questions about myself and and just generally about all of us. Um, but when you talk about being somebody for whom um, you know, loss and grief are felt really acutely. Do you ever find yourself in situations where other people have experienced loss and your empathy for them is so strong that you almost worry that it's too much? (laughs) Mm. Has that ever happened to you? Where like somebody, somebody, you know, loses someone and then you're there for them and like trying to offer comfort and just to say, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss or whatever it is. Um, and but you break down and then, <laughs> <laughs> or like, cause I do this, like, I sometimes feel like, like, uh, you know, I overdo it and, and I'm like, am I, cause I, I just want to be, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of times when a person loses someone or goes through some sort of tragedy, there's a sad irony to the fact that a lot of people will be repelled by that you know, people who care about them, it's just too emotionally intense for them to engage with. And so what happens is that the person who has experienced the loss, uh, winds up feeling isolated or like, yeah. And and so I always worry about that. I think I worry about that so much. And so I'm like, I got to make sure I get in there and say something. And then I get to the point where I'm like, am I saying too much? Do they just want me to go away? <laughs> you start know? blubbering. Yes. <laughs> it's embarrassing. And then you find yourself in the awkward position of being comforted by the bereaved. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, been like, there. Yeah. 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 So that's one of those things too. You got to, you got, you got to find a way to walk the, the fine line in between. And, yeah. and I think that that's true. Like, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now, especially since the election, is people are just, you can get overloaded with that, that same brand of, um, like, the, of empathy without having, without being in direct contact with other people or without even really having anything to do with whatever the situation is that's causing that emotional response. Like yesterday, um, I saw this thing going around Facebook. I was on my way to the reading last night. 
in Hillsburg, and I saw this thing going around Facebook about this dog that was shot by a cop in New York City yesterday. Did you hear about this? No. So, woman was walking her dog. I'll, I'll keep it short. Woman was walking her dog off leash in some park in Manhattan, and these two cops came up and told her to leash the dog, and the dog approached the cops and to hear the woman and other witnesses say it, tell it. Um, she called to the dog, and the dog started turning around toward her and wasn't being aggressive at all. And the the cop pulled his gun and shot the dog twice, which was bad enough. But then they let the dog, the dog was alive for like an hour afterwards, and the woman had no car because it's New York, so she's trying desperately to get somebody to come and take the dog to the vet, and the cops aren't helping. Um, and it just, I mean, it, it it's in part because I actually have more empathy for animals than I do for human beings generally, but I was just <laughs> fucking devastated by it. Yeah. Just devastated and so angry. Like I wanted to find the cop and fucking rip his throat out. Like really wanted to kill him for being such an idiot and for being so insensate and so apathetic about having done something like that. It's just terrible. So, and, and then I got to go read, you know, right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just a fucking mess. Um, and, and I think I see that happening more and more to other people as well, where they're just like, I can't handle this anymore, whether it's everything that's going on with the government or everything that's going on in Syria or climate change or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're all just sort of redlining all the time. Yep. Um, and it doesn't leave us much space for living our lives and, 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 and being well, I guess. Um, and I think it's something that we're going to have to figure out collectively. You know what I mean? Like, um, because this input isn't going away, right? Like for, for every one person who's like, I'm fucking done with Facebook and see you later. There are another 10 who sign up. So, um, this is, this, this is how our lives are, are arranged and this is how information comes to us. And, and we've got to figure out a way to, to, to incorporate it into our lives, but still like, you know, live our lives at the same time. I was just thinking about this yesterday when I, I got, I updated the software on my iPhone reluctantly. Right. And so now what it does when I'm sending somebody a text message is if I write a certain word, like punch, say it offers me it like the fist emoji will pop up. <laughs> right. Okay. And so I think this is fun. I'm like, oh, fists. Or if I'm asking my partner if she wants coffee, a coffee cup will pop up and I put in the coffee cup. And I realize that this is, I've noticed my ability to, to write and, and to write flawlessly, which used to be ironclad like 15 years ago, has slowly been chipped away at by the ways in which we communicate now. All the shorthands, the fuck the punctuation, forgot the fuck the capitalization, who cares if it's, you know, if it's spelled right, which I normally avoid, but it's still eroding my, my, my uh, facility with the language. And so now I'm cutting words out altogether and I'm just putting in a fist emoji. Like what's that going to do to my ability to put a sentence together? You know? Yeah, no, it's like we're, we're going back towards like pictographic language. It's just going to become like hieroglyphics. We're going to have a microchip in our head, you know, like we're going to be like blinking out emojis to each other. I, I don't I have no idea where that, where it's headed, but it calls to mind to me like a couple of books. Like one is called the shallows, um, which is all about exactly what you just said, you know, the way in which uh, internet technology and social media and all the rest 
sort of uh, destroy our ability to go deep into and to engage the way that we used to. And then there's another book uh, called Deep Work, which makes the argument that in the economy that we live in now, and especially the one that we're headed toward, there's going to be a premium on people who are able to uh, work and think deeply. Right. Because the the kinds of jobs that are going to be worth a shit in the future and not are are not going to be the kind of jobs that can be automated, first of all, um, which doesn't leave a ton of people, you know, it doesn't leave a ton for people to, to go after. So I, you know, it makes me think like, God, I, you got to really protect your head, you know, and you got to find ways to focus. And it's a personal discipline. Like I tried to get off of all social media after the election. And then I found myself for work purposes in particular, like I, I need Twitter. Like I got to be able to communicate with people, um, socially online but, you know, then I find myself, you know, taking the app off of my phone and then putting it back on and then taking, you know, and right. it's very hard to extract yourself. It's very hard, which is what they want. <laughs> By design, right? Yeah. By design. It's difficult. I mean, yeah, you're going to have to keep your Twitter account for when we start our book doula business. So. <laughs> right. Hash, like we'll come up with some great hashtags for that. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about your book. Uh, the one eyed man, like, you know, I think it speaks in the way that books often do. Like I'm, I'm consistently, uh, amused by and fascinated by the way in which fiction writers can seem to predict a moment or at least be, you know, it's something about the, I feel like there's something to it. Like your antennas up, you're assimilating a lot of information. You're obviously a guy who pays attention to what's going on in the world. Um, you have a good brain. And then it all goes in. It all goes in there, and out comes uh, the one-eyed man at this moment when uh, it, it feels it feels kind of just right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes books do that, and uh, obviously you can't game it. But can can you talk a little bit about uh, its origins and like what caused you to go down this rabbit hole? Sure. I I think what you're referring to, maybe most broadly, is is the fact that the the main character K basically spends his, his entire time in the book um, engaging with and refuting people's false beliefs, um, which obviously are running rampant in the culture at large. Um, and, you know, I started writing the book about four years ago, and I, I think the reason why people are seeing the book as, as prescient or timely or whatever is because it's not because fake news or bullshit on the internet is a, is a recent phenomenon. It's not, right? This stuff has been around as long as the internet's been around. I think what's happening is that people didn't seem to realize, by and large, that, that bullshit on the internet could have such tremendous real-world con- consequences. So it's almost a false reaction. Like we're, we're, we're running around saying, how could, you know, how could the advent of fake news, like this, this stuff did not happen in November. It happened a long time ago. And so that's what I was writing about back then. You know, that's why it occurred to me back then because I took note of it back then. Um, so I don't think I was paying any closer attention. I think I just, I just saw it for what it was maybe sooner than a lot of other people did. And so and I have a really, really low tolerance for bullshit in all its forms. And so, you know, along with my obsession with, with grief, there is an obsession with nonsense. 
um, and ferreting it out and casting some light on it. And so that was the motivation for, for that aspect of the book. So here's a question for you, because this is something that I've been puzzling over. It, like when you talk about, like, I, I feel like there's a, there's so much irresponsibility in our news media. There's irresponsibility, you know, uh, at the executive level in our main social media companies. Like I think that Facebook, um, you know, needs to do a better job of policing what's going up on people's news feeds and whatnot, you know, because it has such a, a pernicious influence. And, and, right. um, but then again, like you're also trying to balance, uh, those responsibilities and the need for, um, you know, fewer lies or whatever with freedom of expression, you know, cause it can get, it can get tricky. You know, it's like, are you starting sure. to s silence people? Like, do we have to pass laws so that we have some more, um, uh, regulations on the news media. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the answer? How do we, you can, like, it seems like the genie's out of the bottle. Like, can you, is there anything that can be done like to, to parse it better and to make sure that the, the public is informed in a sane way or is it just, Honestly, I think, I think we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, you know, I mean, do you really want Facebook, which is probably the, the, the biggest source of information period, like full stop for more people on the globe than any other outlet, do you really want them deciding what is and is not legit? No. I don't. Yeah. Um, so I think the only, the only viable, you know, as usual, it's difficult and it's all about the long game, right? Which is why people don't like to engage with it and people don't like to admit it because they want quick, seamless, white hat, black hat solutions. And they just don't exist. And I think in this case, the best bulwark against bullshit is an educated populace capable of critical thinking. And that starts in pre-K, right? It starts, it starts in the home. Um, it starts with a very well-funded and otherwise supported public educational system, none of which is in place right now. Um, to me, that's the only solution. And, and like I said, it's a long game solution. It's like, you know, I was talking about this with somebody who works in politics, and I was saying, you know, that's that's the real solution for, or the, or the it's the antidote to the Trump phenomenon and everything that attendant to it, right? But that's that's not going to help us in 2018. It's not going to help us in 2020, 22. It's not going to help us for a generation. Um, so in the meantime, fuck if I know. I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep my own head straight, you know. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's confusing, and it's like. Like you say, you know, there's so much coming at us. Like even if you have a good critical brain and, and you can parse stuff and you know where to go for good information and so on and so forth, just the sheer volume and the intensity of uh, what's what's happening right now in, in so many different areas. You know, it's like how do you possibly process it all and maintain some kind of emotional equilibrium? Like, you know, I've been spending like the, this past week anyway. I've been spending a lot of time just calling Congress people, um, which has made me feel good. I, I don't, you know, you wonder how much good anything you do does in that realm, but at least talking to another human being, um, especially one of a different political persuasion and just calmly explaining myself, I have to say has made me feel a little bit better. And, uh, you know, if, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but if they, if you're talking to Congress critters, like actual house members, and you're in their district, they're listened. Like yeah. they, they pay attention to that shit. 
which is part of the reason you're seeing moderate Republicans are now balking at this repeal and replace nonsense with the ACA. It's not because they found Jesus. It's because their constituents are like, if you vote for this, you're fucking out of here. Right. Um, it's a little bit different with the Senate, but um, with the House, I mean, you know, you're up for election a lot more frequently, and you you actually answer to your constituents in a very real way. So I think it makes a difference for sure. Well, the problem with me is that you know I'm in Southern California and Los Angeles, and so all of the politicians locally, like you know whatever district I'm in, like you sort of feel covered, you know, because they're all Democrats. They're all Democrats. So I've just been calling, I, I call people from everywhere. I call Congress people from everywhere. And the truth is that the ACA or the AHCA or whatever they're trying to, uh, you know, replace it with, that affects everybody. I mean, I don't care if you're from Maine or you're from New Jersey or you're from Illinois. Like if you're voting on health care, that affects me. So sure. I feel, you know, I feel like uh, it's within my bounds to, to call them up and let them know what oh, I think. Listen, I I'm not suggesting, and I'm definitely not stating outright that you shouldn't be calling people outside of your districts, but, but it just in, in practical terms and how, you know, how politicians are influenced to vote, like, I don't think that that has a tremendous effect. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard like, it's funny. Cause like some of them ask that's my, just, that's just what Koki Roberts told me. So <laughs> take it up with her. <laughs> well, I know, but it's funny. Cause you know, the staffers that I talk with, some of them just listen and say, thank you. And tell, you know, they tell you they're going to pass along the news or whatever. Some of them ask you for your full name and your address, or they ask you for your zip code. And as soon as I, I say I'm from Los Angeles, you can just hear like something changes in their voice. They're like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this going to write this. This is This guy's going into the trash as soon as I get off the phone. Yeah, that's it. But, uh, how do you think this ends? Like, this is a question I've been asking people, you know, like how, how, what's the end game for Donald Trump? What's the, how does this. Oh, I thought we were going bigger picture than that. <laughs> well, that too. I was going to say, I think how it ends is we are at the beginning of the end of empire, but let's talk about Trump. Yeah. Um, how do I think it ends? I, I, I don't know. Last night I had a moment of despair where I thought they're never going to pin it on him. They're never going to actually pin it on him. Like the, What's happening right now, you see, everybody gets excited whenever, like, you know, the, the bit that CNN ran yesterday about sources inside American intelligence stating outright to CNN that there's circumstantial evidence that indicates there was, in fact, collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign, right? Right. And that sounds great, and everybody gets really excited about it. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't stick. It just doesn't stick. And it especially doesn't stick with a sitting president. What we need, and what we have no idea whether or not exists, is irrefutable evidence that there was collusion between his campaign and Russian operatives. And until that happens, Trump's not going anywhere. Unless they find something else, unless they find a dead hooker or something like that. Um, Entirely possible. I was going to say, which is possible. <laughs> um, but but I think I think all of this all of this intrigue that's swirling around the Russia question makes for good copy and it makes for interesting social media conversations. But the fact of the matter is none of it is going to amount to shit unless it can hold up in a court of law. And that's a very, very high bar, especially when you're talking about a sitting president, right? So all that said, I think it probably ends. I mean, I don't even know how it ends. Like, I was wondering about this the other day. What happens if 
let's say that they do find irrefutable evidence that the Trump campaign colluded with, with the Russians, right? So at that point, doesn't that negate the entire election? Because everybody's like, well, then Pence takes over. I'm like, are you sure? Right. No, it does. It doesn't. This is what I keep saying. It, it does negate it. Like, think about it. Uh, like George Takai, you know, the, uh, yeah, yeah. the you know, Sulu on uh, Star Trek, you know, yeah. he had his Twitter. His favorite Asian elderly Asian gay man. Yes, he's everybody's favorite elderly Asian gay man, but he his Twitter has been indispensable during the Trump presidency uh, from my from my perspective anyway. He's been great on Twitter and he he put it very plainly. He's like, "Look, when there's an Olympic event and somebody wins the gold medal and they are later found to have cheated, they lose their gold medal and the gold medal goes to the runner-up. And when a thief is caught stealing, he doesn't get to keep his spoils. The the items are taken away and returned. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so the question then becomes: like, if Trump is found to have cheated, the normal uh, line of succession doesn't hold. You don't just then hand it to his vice presidential candidate because that vice presidential candidate is in office um, by way of cheating as well. So then do you just have like a redo, or do you just give like does Hillary Clinton become president, or do you just have a a do over election? I think it follows the line of succession down to Paul Ryan. I mean, it, it, there's really no, there's certainly no precedent for it, and I'm not even sure that the that the mechanism exists, right? Like this is, this these are uncharted fucking waters. Yes. So I think, I mean, my guess would be that it would it would we would end up with President Paul Ryan. But but the, but the Republicans would have no claim on the office because they won by cheating. They would have like the American people would have to say no. We want to do over. Like we want to make sure that the outcome is legit. Like I, that's what I would be pressing for anyway. Like I guess for me the question would be: Does Hillary just become you know? Does, does she get it by default because she came in second, or do you do a redo election? In which case, like, there are, there are primaries again. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a special election where you have, like, an abbreviated primary season. And I mean, that would be, I think, in a vacuum, that would be ideal. But when you're talking about, like, the real world messiness of running a gigantic superpower. And, you know, it reminds me of the 2000 election where I, I think, maybe I'm making this up, but I think part of the Supreme Court's decision was based in their desire to to see the whole thing ended for the good of the republic right and so what regardless of how you feel about the decision they came to that was an aspect of it that was an influence on it and so i think this certainly would qualify as a similar situation in which expedience may be more important than fairness um I could see that rationale being given. Uh, it's sort of like you know. when it's sort of like when Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon. You know, <laughs> like right. uh, it's for the good. And maybe you know, th- I guess it's arguable that 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 there was some wisdom. I wasn't really politically conscious uh, or even alive uh, at that point, so it, you know, I don't know exactly what the mood of the country was, or like, it's hard for me to evaluate how good it was in the end. But um, you know, I, I like you say, it's uncharted territory, and we have no precedent for it. And so we're going to be making it up on the fly one way or the other. And I think it's going to be very fucking interesting to see how it plays out. And, you know, whenever I start to get hypothetical about it, you know, it gets very, it's like on the one hand, I'm kind of excited in a weird way, you know, in like a panicky way. (laughs) Uh, But on the other hand, I'm sort of terrified, like, oh my God, like what a shit show. 
this is. What the, um, what the, the ancient Chinese uh, blessing, may you live in, in interesting times. Right. <laughs> Got it covered. Which is, <laughs> right, and that's, but that's obviously a double-edged sword, right? Like, it sounds wonderful at first blush, but then you're like, wait, <laughs> interesting. Define interesting. Yeah. Um, and, I, and like you said, I think this definitely qualifies. Well, and what like, and the, and the other thing too is like, what does how, how does a, a guy like Donald Trump, with his uh, freaky neurochemistry and personality profile, like how does he behave if the news titans, you know, legally around him? I think uh, we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it because they know. See, these guys, none of these guys are operating like people who did nothing wrong, right? Nobody in that administration is acting like, like innocent people would behave. And I think, I think an experienced investigator would tell you that. Like, this is what these guys are trained to look for when they're investigating. Um, so, so I think we're already seeing what happens when the news starts to tighten. I mean, he, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, I suppose they have to keep, continue going through the motions of governance, but it's amazing to me that they're like, well, let's talk about China, knowing that, Full well that a month from now he could be in in a, in a you know federal prison, <laughs> right? You know, hmm. um, I hope he's not sleeping well. Let's put it that way. Well, and it's funny because you know I start to think about um, you. Th- you think about the Russians and you think about Vladimir Putin and how many people he has uh, offed. Like there's just another guy uh, today who was shot point blank in the streets in the Ukraine who was. Uh, anti-Russia. I mean, this happens over and over again, whether a person gets poisoned or shot or knifed in an elevator, like it's, it's, uh, it's beyond coincidental. Let's just put it that way. And then I start to think about, uh, the way that Devin Nunes has been behaving where he's, you know, he's on the house intelligence committee. He's privy to all of this, uh, classified information. He gets an anonymous, he gets a call from a quote unquote anonymous source, rushes to the white house and shares it with the president before even sharing it with his felt like like first of all that's that's way outside of bounds and oh, he yeah. di- and he didn't even share it with his uh fellow committee members and then he gave a press conference about it so it's like this is very odd behavior yeah and so. it makes me worry i guess that you know like what if people start turning up dead in america you know people who might have vital information or whatever like it seems at least within the realm of possibility considering how weird things are i mean i don't want to sound too, you know, I don't want to sound too dark or conspiracy well, theorist. I mean, the guy who the guy who assembled that original dossier on on Trump and Putin, which was which was originally um, oppositional research. It was it was paid for by uh, I forget who paid for, it, but it was paid for on behalf of the Democratic cause, right? So this this British former. Um, intelligence agent Steele, i think his name is you remember he went underground the moment it came to light so this is a guy who understands what's at stake and who he's dealing with right he's not he's not paranoid he knows exactly what's going on and he ran yeah so there's reason to be afraid um but what i think the difference is and a friend of mine pointed this out to me a while ago is that Trump thinks he's a, he's a bad hombre, to use his phrase, but Vladimir Putin is a genuine bad guy, and yeah. Trump is not, and he doesn't understand the difference. Or maybe he does now, 
but he didn't understand the difference when he was, you know, cutting side deals with him. Um, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Like when you try to like, because Trump's just such a hard guy to figure, you know, in some ways, uh, I guess it's, I mean, and, and yet I think what I'm saying is that for all of the, the murkiness of him or trying like for a rational person to try to sort out his behavior can be a tall order. But at the end of the day, it almost kind of seems like maybe it's simpler than that. Like maybe Trump just likes anybody who agrees with him. And hates anybody who disagrees with him. <laughs> like, totally. that's it. It's really just as long as you're pro-Trump, he's pro-you. And if you're anti-anything about him, he's anti-you in the extreme. Sure. And that's it. Sure. And that's, and, and you don't even, I don't, I don't imagine you have to be particularly convincing in your pro-Trumpness. No. You just have to articulate it. Just say it. Just say, like, I like Trump and he loves you. <laughs> I mean, you know, but it, like, it seems like it could even transcend. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think the guy genuinely has uh, racial issues. And yet I think that if an African-American person were to say, I love Trump, he'd be like, I love you, buddy. You know, like, I, of I, I think that's just kind of how it is with him. It, it's just, Which it, is just another form of you're one of the good ones, right? Yeah. I mean, when you boil it down... Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I think, I think the interesting thing about Trump, in this context that we're discussing right now, is that his worldview is is that simplistic, which is precisely why he appeals so strongly to people whose worldview is simplistic and monochromatic. Um, and God bless us; their votes count as much as ours do. Yeah, he makes it easy. Or at least he did. I mean, the the question too, you know, it's like it's like when do we find definitive evidence? Um, you know, will we find definitive evidence of uh, collusion with the Russians? And I think of it in terms of um, modern media culture. Uh, it, I, I guess like a here's a parallel example. Um, it seems like if there's videotape of men behaving badly. That is damning. Like, I think of, uh, remember the professional athlete, I'm forgetting who it was, who got caught beating his wife in that elevator? So many. Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. <laughs> but remember the, Ray Rice. Okay, yeah, so Ray Rice Ryan was back. like punched his wife in an elevator and it was caught on tape. Yeah, knocked her out cold. Knocked her out cold. And man, that video was damning. And once that aired, like, he was done. Like done. done because there's like video is powerful, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. Like she, she, she could show up with a broken nose and a black eye, but if there's no video, the Baltimore Ravens are probably like, well, it's circumstantial, you know, like, uh, it's her word against his or whatever. But once there's video, it's hard for even, you know, simple minded or monochromatic thinkers or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's hard for them to deny. And so the question is like, what would have to be presented for people in the Republican, like Republican voters and especially like hardcore Trump voters to be uh, flipped, you know, from, mm. su from support to opposition or to be convinced that something is awry. Well, I think, I think that's a tougher nut to crack, and here's why. Because even, even people, let's take the Ray Rice example, even people who were like, well, you know, before the video came out, because there was, there was a lag between the accusation and the, the, the incident coming to light and the video being released to the public. So even the people who were like, well, you know, things happen and maybe she, you know, maybe he pushed her or something and then she hit her head on the banister or whatever you, whatever scenarios you concoct to, you know, to um, rationalize this stuff. 
those people didn't have an emotional investment in Ray Rice. The people we're talking about right now have a huge emotional investment in Donald Trump. Right? He's a surrogate. He's a proxy for them. All their frustrations, all their racism, everything else that's going on with them. Um, and given that fact, no matter what, I've, I've joked more than once about how I think it's going to take a nuclear detonation over Albany for these people to see the light. And even then, I'm not sure they'd be convinced. What about, like, okay, so, like, let's take... Um Trump Russia and push it to the side for a second, you know, and some sort of what, what you and I and most rational people would consider damning evidence of his guilt. Um, let's let's say that that were to exist, but that would not be enough to convince these people who are emotionally invested, you know, however mo emotionally invested a hardcore Trump supporter might be. They voted for him expecting to get something in return. And that's one of, I think, the great scandals of this whole thing is that. You know, he rode into office, uh, at least partially, um, on the support of blue-collar people, um, you know, people like working-class voters who were expecting him to make things better for them. And I think that, like, like once we get deeper into his presidency, like, how much evidence will have to pile up or how much worse will things have to get for these people before they say, hey, this guy's... This guy lied to us. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe that could be something that could persuade them. Suddenly they're, yeah. you know, they can't get medicine when they're sick or something. I mean, I, I wish that I shared your optimism. My, my thinking on all of that is, is um, that's where the spin machine comes into play, right? Where you deflect blame, you put it on the Democrats for being in transit in, in, in Congress or whatever. Like that's easy enough to slough off. I think uh, we see it all the time and we see it with, with plenty of politicians other than Donald Trump. Right. Um, but you know, I also am happy to entertain the possibility that I underestimate my fellow Americans. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would, I would be ecstatic to be wrong about that. Well, I mean, the thing I've been trying to soothe myself with is that, you know, the same electorate were mostly the same electorate elected Barack Obama twice. Sure. Um, so, you know, there is some wiggle room and I was just saying this, uh, in a recent episode, you know, on the, in a monologue, you know, that you, the game in, in politics, you, we have to move the middle. We have to find a way to get the middle of the political dialogue, uh, like headed in a saner direction, you know, and there are, there are, I think, I think more people than not are persuadable, um, they're not super fixed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that yeah. pe people can be moved, but sometimes it just, it takes a while, you know, and maybe. I agree with you. And I, and I think, I think it's also important to know that the people we're talking about are like 30% of the electorate, right? Maybe 32, 35, something like that. Yeah. So there is, there is a vast middle and I count myself part of it, certainly on the left side of the middle, but middle moderate. Um, and I think, there are several silver linings to to everything that's going on right now, one of which is that that vast middle, a good portion of it has become mobilized and, and galvanized, you know? And and the conventional thinking has always been that, that political moderates are the opposite of galvanized and, and, and um, mobilized, that by definition, they're sort of politically inert. 
Um, and, and, you know, this is the, this is the very definition of a moving train that you can't be neutral on, right? Like you've got to be on one side or the other. Right. Um, so, so that's one of the silver linings. The other one is, you know, if it's sustained, um, the sort of fierce political activism, the money that's pouring into progressive causes right now, um, you know, there's a lot that's going on in the face of this that's very positive. The question is, is that energy and that revenue sustainable if we need to sustain it, you know? And what lessons will be learned? You know, like you always wonder. It's amazing how short people's memories are uh, and political memories. I mean, like the fact that, uh, like, like, like it's amazing to me to see the um, political makeover or the, you know, the the PR makeover that George W. Bush is is trying to, go through right now with these paintings and everything. That's another silver lining. George W. Bush looks like a fucking saint. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. He really does. (laughs) He does to me. I want to have him over for a beer now. I mean, I mean, or an old duels, I guess. An old duels. Yeah. I mean, but it's like, you know, for, for, if you were old enough to go through the Bush Cheney Iraq, you know, war years, like that was, I thought the pinnacle of, um, stress, you know, political stress in my lifetime, yeah. or at least I hoped it was. And now that looks like small potatoes. It, it seems so fucking quaint. Yeah. You're like, eh, <laughs> need, a needless, a needless foreign excursion that costs, you know, thousands of lives and billions and trillions of dollars. Bring it on. <laughs> Jesus. I'll have second. <laughs> um, so here's a question before I, you know, I know you probably got to get running, but I want to ask you this question because this is something that I uh, have not had very many conversations about, but which I think is uh, worth considering. And I think you just sort of alluded to it is, you know, how do, how do political lefties respond to all this? And like, there is a division, I think, between more moderate Democrats and the new left or whatever you want to call it, the Bernie left. And there are divisions there as well that are going to have to be sutured or, um, you know, bridged in order for Democrats to respond with some sort of uh, coherence. Like, how do you see that playing out? I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I, um, I think that one of the principal problems we have on the left, whether you're just, you know, sort of a, a blue dog Democrat or a genuine diet on the wall progressive is that um, we have our fights in public too much. Um, often over, over language orthodoxy. Um, I think that weakens us both in the eyes of the people who oppose us, you know, um, policy-wise and, and ideologically, and also as, as a whole, as an entity, it weakens us. Um, and I think, I really do think that we need to, to try to move away from the absolutism and the dogma of um, what I think of as like a progressive purity test. Like you have to be absolutely 100% right on every single issue or you are cast out into the wilderness. Right. And that's not a winning strategy. Um, And like it or not, I mean, I don't know, it's tough to talk about. And the fact that it's tough to talk about is is, um, exemplary of the problems to begin with, right? Like you can't talk honestly about it in public because you you'll get your fucking ass handed to you. Right. 
Um, feels like you're walking into a minefield, you know, like you're just like, Oh shit. Like I, I'll start down these lines, um, in conversation, whether it's like in real life or, on, or, you know, in my civilian existence or on this show or whatever. And I, I catch myself and I go, Oh shit. Like I just walked <laughs> into it. Then you start slowing down, you start picking your words, you know, it's, and it, there's nothing wrong with being careful about what you say and wanting to be thoughtful, but it right. does, it does feel like the environment, like, I feel like there's a lot of anger in people I know, friends of mine. Like everyone's kind of ratcheted up, myself included, probably, um, because of what's going on. And sometimes it can manifest in this kind of feeding frenzy. You know, people want to punch something. People are pissed. You know, and it's just a shame when it's like, dude, you're you're punching somebody who agrees with you on ninety eight percent of this. And right. I'll give an example, okay? And I'm going to get. I'm going to get in trouble. I'll, I'll risk getting in trouble on this. Right, um, I'll go along with you. Yeah. I'll back your play. Yeah, just back my play or at least, you know, or feel, or feel you know free. We're, we're two white guys. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So uh, Bill Maher, all right, yep. who, who I have watched for years. Uh, mea culpa. Like, I've watched his show. I always found it to be something of a relief when countenanced against, like, cable news um, like some of the more buttoned up Sunday shows on in the morning where yeah, I can sit there and watch people who can cuss, who can um, say inappropriate things. He has Republicans on, there's disagreement. It just felt like a more honest dialogue a lot of the time. And then recently there was this huge controversy when he had this Milo guy on from Breitbart. Milo. Yeah, yep. who's like a racist, uh, you know, or like has said some hateful, racist, awful things. And, you know, it's indefensible. And I would say that I thought Marr should have hit the guy harder by a long shot. I, 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 was I never saw the segment. Uh, sorry, go on. I, I realize you're working your way up to a point. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it was just like, I, I, think, he, I think he blew it, frankly. I think it's, you know, if, if you want to have the guy on, you got to really call him to the carpet for what he said. And I didn't see that, except from Larry Wilmore, who was a panel guest. You know, who, he, right. he actually did the work of, of, you know, pushing back at the guy. Um, but like that to me, that's a mistake. Okay. And the question is, do I now never watch his show again? And Mar has also said things that people characterize as Islamophobic. He said things that people characterize as sexist. I can't necessarily disagree. The question is like, like what about the, uh, other like 90s, you know, 4.7% of the time when what he's saying jives with my sense of justice and um, what's wise politically. Do you know what I'm saying? That's like precisely, that's precisely what I'm talking about. Yeah. The notion, the notion that somebody with whom you agree socially, politically, um, ethically, ninety, even ninety, let's say ninety percent of the time, is your bitter enemy because he had a particular guest on his show is fucking childish. There, I said it. It's I, childish. I mean, it's like, I just feel like if the left wants to, if progressives really want to uh, succeed in changing the country and, and pushing it in a more progressive direction, we're going to have to find a way to deal with our differences. And to, it, it, the coali political coalitions are always lumpy, you know, and ugly. And sure. it's, you know, like you say, this purity test, I feel it. I've had so many conversations off the record and on this show about people who feel that sense of, um, oh God, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to step on it. I gotta, I gotta be correct. And I know that like, 
you know, I, I've had this conversation where I say, God, this political correctness pressure that I feel is onerous. And then a friend of mine will be like, it's not that hard. It just basically means you've got to respect the rights of, um, you know, people who are oppressed and people who are uh, disadvantaged and, you know, it's not that hard to be politically correct. And I, I can empathize with that. I mean, that makes some sense to me. Like I, like you say, we're two white guys. Uh, maybe we don't know, um, you know, or don't feel the effects of, um, political incorrectness in the way that others do. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, we certainly, we certainly don't. We yeah. certainly don't. Of course we don't. Um, but, but I guess what I wonder about sometimes is what that's, that's all fine and well. And I totally acknowledge it. And I, and I try to do what I can as an individual and sometimes as a writer to, to ameliorate that insofar as it's possible. Right. But I guess what I end up wondering is, so what does that mean for discourse going forward? Because I do feel that oftentimes it's not enough simply to be whatever politically correct means. Oftentimes it's not enough to shut your mouth and listen. Um, it, 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 I don't want to put this. I'm not trying to parse my words to be politically correct. I'm trying to parse my words so that I say what I actually mean. Um, It feels as though you can't you you sometimes can't say what you mean for fear of uh, the torches and pitchforks being broken out. But what's interesting to me is that, and this brings us all the way back to what I think we're supposed to be talking about, which is books. Um, <laughs> not that I mind this conversation at all, but uh, um, you can do that in a in a novel. You can wade into those waters somewhat more safely because I do think that people who understand art and how it's supposed to function recognize that a quote-unquote discussion of these issues that colors outside the lines within a novel um, can be fruitful and has a purpose and is distinct from saying terrible things or, or even, you know, uh, controversial things in our everyday speech, in our everyday conversations. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just, I think it's, it's easier for people to tolerate. It's a say, you know, it's like a, a safer space for that sort of thing to happen. And I also think that there's something to be said about, um, you know, the, the digestibility of written work, especially, you know, like fiction, literary fiction, etc., or, or even non-form or uh, long form nonfiction or whatever. Uh, it's easier, I think, for people to process controversial talk or thoughts or situations or what have you than it is in conversation. Uh, Especially when you can't immediately respond, right? When you can't hit a comment button or put a finger in somebody's face. Right. Um, when you have to just sit with it, even if, if for only a minute. Um, I think that's crucial. And, and, before you before you go to before you go to Goodreads and trash it, <laughs> exactly. Which is obviously that's going to happen. Um, but maybe during that one minute window before you know before, when you set the book down and before you log on to Goodreads, you know maybe something gets through. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And and you know, I guess like as a um, an extension of that thought, I would ask you just to try to in some way bring this full circle. 
Um, you know, like the one-eyed man speaks to a lot of the issues that we are confronted with today, politically and culturally and whatnot. Um, how much of a responsibility do writers of fiction have to address this stuff? You know, it's like thinking in, thinking in particular of the moment we're in now, like, you know, the, the, the popular perception or the thing that you hear a lot is that, you know, when you live in interesting times or difficult times or whatever, uh, those are usually periods that are very uh, fertile in the in terms of the arts. Like, sure. do, do you feel a sense of responsibility to respond to this moment artistically? Mm, I don't think responsibility is the right word. Because the moment you start assigning um, social obligations upon art that is a slippery fucking slope um so i would say that i think the reasons why times like these are are um fertile for artists and tend to produce really good work and really interesting work and important work uh is because of the response that the that the artists themselves have to the times that they're living in it has it in my mind, it has nothing to do with a, with a, res- a larger responsibility to, to the culture or to society. Um, I get really nervous whenever somebody starts asking questions about um, fiction in particular, obviously, because that's what I do, but fiction's responsibility uh, to the greater good, you know? Um, it makes me really nervous. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me, actually, of something that I saw yesterday about this and maybe you've heard about this, there's a, a painting of Emmett Till's um, body in its casket that's based on these photographs that were published in Jet Magazine back in whenever it was, 1955, 52, something like that. Um, and, the, and the painting was done by a white woman, and it's on display somewhere, and there are a bunch of people who are calling for it to be taken down and some people who are calling for it to be destroyed. Um. And I have to say, I understand that, that we're having conversations about these sorts of things right now, and those conversations are often contentious and, and sometimes intractable. But to be calling for the destruction of a work of art based on the race of the person who created it, I think we need to reconsider. I think we need to reexamine what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, man, I always love talking to you and, uh, I'm really uh, grateful to have this conversation like these kinds of conversations I don't get to have with, with too many people. Um, and I'm just, I don't know. I appreciate it a lot. And I am very pleased, uh, that we get to shine a light on you and your book. And, uh, I wish you well on everything you have going on, the TV show, the magazine work, um, and then also the next novel. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. It's really nice. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Ron Curry. His new novel is called The One-Eyed Man, available now from Viking, official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Ron online at roncurryauthor.com. You can follow him on Twitter over at rcurryjr. Uh, I believe he's also on Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music, as always. If you want to uh, check out more from them, just go to killrockstars.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to support it, you can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also support the show uh, by, by way of PayPal. There's a link in the sidebar over at other So, uh, what to say? 
Great to talk to Ron. Can't stop thinking about politics. I'm, I apologize. If you, if you have that within you, if you're able to do that, uh, God bless you. But I just cannot stop thinking about what is going on. Maybe that's because I'm back on Twitter. I'm looking at this shit all day long. It's coming at me uh, as if from a firehouse. Just a constant, powerful stream of shitty information that I am trying to parse and respond to effectively. I really was better off in the aftermath of the election when I just shut down completely, stopped reading the news, watching the news, quit using social media, enveloped myself in a, like a hermetically sealed bubble of ignorance in a PTSD-related measure of self-protection. Do you know what I'm saying? But you can't do that. You have to engage. I can't stay there forever. I got to get out and do something. The question is how to strike a balance. I felt like I had an epiphany about politics. I forgot what it was. I had something to say. I can't remember what it was. It's too bad because it was an epiphany. I actually figured it out then forgot about it. Great to talk to Ron Curry. Go get the one-eyed man. It's a great writer. <laughs>